Good morning, Sydney, Australia. It's Friday, the 15th of February. I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day. James, where did you learn to play the organ like that so well? Um, I don't know what organ you're referring to. <laughs> Come on, you're all sheepish. You know our intro organ, you know, you know, you... you oh, that one. Every every week you pull it out from under the, the table and you just whack along the... And it's just... Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I'm not developing, you know, I like to spend a bit of time, you know, out in the bush, playing the organ. <laughs> in the bush. <laughs> yep. That's what I do. <laughs> you do know Americans don't use the word bush, but they, they call it... Out the, in the forest. Or the like woods. The woods, that's yes, it. Yes, yeah. the woods. They laughed at me when uh, I was at my first Burning Man and hanging out with some of them. And I started saying, oh, I go to a great festival in the bush. <laughs> and they're all like, uh, it has a few other connotations there anyway. Uh, yes. Um, episode 13 of the It's a Monkey podcast. Thank you for joining us. We have a great show lined up for you today. Later on in the show, we're going to be interviewing Burke Smith, who's from a startup called Straight Align. Now, we're pretty interested in education. We feel that it's an area that there's a lot of room for disruption. There's still pretty much the universities and the colleges that seem to dominate, and we feel that technology has not really lived up to its promise of, of disrupting these industries. And Straight Align, um, which is uh, had the CEO Burke Smith he'll be talking to have taken quite an interesting approach to solving the issue of um, you know education the cost of education the access of education so we'll be talking to um, Burke a little bit later he is in Boston but as usual we're going to kick off with some tech stories that happened over the last couple of weeks just a reminder we are keeping the schedule quite um, religiously every two weeks so the hopefully that will just remind you to listen to the show thanks to everyone that has been listening um, our numbers are going up really um, strongly remember to email us um, tweet us facebook us um, you know how to get hold of us this week let's look at some of uh, what's happening in the news james um yes there's the there's the news just out uh, this morning about uh, the opera browser converting to webkit um, do you know? Do you know much about what WebKit is? How it works? Vaguely. I mean, I know you guys uh, talk about it, and uh, you know, tell us why that's important. So, WebKit is essentially the the core engine which drives um, uh, both Chrome and uh, Safari on on a Mac. Um, it was originally written by Apple, and essentially, it was like a new way to uh, to to render web page. Essentially, it was an open source system, so it was all everybody could sort of contribute to it. Um, and it was kind of competitive to Microsoft's approach, which was all obviously sort of closed and um, uh, and proprietary. And it was really an attempt to uh, yeah make the whole system much more open. And then uh, it's been used by a few companies. I think it's used um, in a few mobile browsers. Uh, but it's definitely when Chrome took it up, that was definitely the biggest adoption it's had. Um, so previously, it was just Chrome and uh, Safari using it. Um, and Opera had their own rendering engine, and now they're um, just today they they announced they're going to convert to WebKit, um, which is great because it means uh, you don't really need to test anymore on Opera as a separate browser. You're essentially just going to have two different platforms, essentially the WebKit ecosystem. So if you develop on Chrome, you you know it's pretty much going to run on any WebKit browser, um, and then Internet Explorer. So. The only major browser that doesn't use WebKit is Internet Explorer now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think WebKit's probably doing pretty much whatever the whatever the traffic, like 60, 70% of the global traffic now. Traffic. So that's Chrome, Firefox, 
Crow, oh, Safari. Actually, actually, it's a good question. What does Firefox use? Yeah, I can't remember if Firefox uses WebKit or not. It may not use it. So basically, it helps the development process because you don't have to... Um, you can be assured of the consistency across browsers, which is, of course, a major issue when you're developing um, web applications or websites. Yeah, essentially it's the... I mean, there's obviously a lot that goes into a browser, but the, the WebKit engine is, is the rendering engine, which is essentially the the bit which kind of takes the HTML code or the, the data it gets from the from the computers it's talking to and actually renders what you see on the screen. Yep. Um, so that's kind of the core part of the system. And... Um, and by using that, uh, by using WebKit, they're taking advantage of all the other companies working on Toffit as well. So as people add new features, it's all um, upgraded together. Um, and yeah, actually, I just checked. Uh, Firefox doesn't use WebKit. They use their own Gecko Chrome rendering engine. Right. So there is still um, three, I guess, you should technically test on. So Firefox, um, Chrome, and Internet Explorer. I mean, these big companies like Apple and Facebook and Twitter, I, I think the, the layperson in the streets isn't always aware that they actually spin out some open source um, mm. um, elements that you know have a have a strong impact on the the industries in general and they don't sure they benefit these companies indirectly in a way because it strengthens ecosystems but you know if apple developed this thing called webkit and they release it into open source um, they're not receiving really directly any benefit from all their work are they no, I mean it's it's hard to know it's hard to know what direct benefit Apple gets post keeping keeping it proprietary. I mean, I guess the other way you can look at it though is essentially you know by by creating WebKit and then letting other people develop it, they they get all that that development resources on top of it. So, you know, WebKit is probably. I mean, if I think anybody, if they're building new browsers these days, they they would pick WebKit as by far, you know, the the most advanced system out there. Um, and by open sourcing that engine and uh, making it, uh, you know, really great to use and available for everybody, they've got that advantage for everybody else working on top of it. So, yeah, <coughs> I know. Um, yeah, Facebook open source some of their their sort of back end technology. Twitter have open yeah. sourced some of their JavaScript um, <coughs> libraries. Yeah, Bootstrap. Yeah, um, yeah. There's 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 quite a few of these little things that uh, that the companies like to open source, and uh, yeah, it it adds it adds value. Does Microsoft open source anything ever? Hmm, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I'm I'm sure they've done some stuff, but I just can't think of anything. Um, I, interesting. I only noticed on the weekend when I was just playing with Skype that you can log in on Skype now with well what used to be your hotmail address i don't know i've lost mm. track it's your outlook address now outlook.com address or um, it's had a few iterations that the hotmail i mean I st in my head it's still hotmail um, but you can log in directly to skype using that account and i think they've deprecated uh, microsoft messenger which was huge uh, for many years so i think that's replaced that mm, yeah that's kind of interesting they've had that uh facebook quite deep facebook integration over the past year or so have you ever used that? In integration in your... your Skype. Oh, no, I haven't. Uh, I've had some friends complain about that, mm. that I'll message them on Facebook and they'll go, oh, sorry, this has just come through to my Skype. I'm at work. I can't chat now. And they've yeah. they've integrated their Facebook chat with their Skype. I think I've I've made sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got it on mine. Essentially, if, you, if you, you connect your account with Facebook, you... Yeah, essentially, it, it merges the chat system. So if you chat on... 
Um, if you start a chat on Facebook, it will come through to Skype. And I think you can try to start a chat on Skype and make it come through to Facebook as well. And you get things like notifications, so yeah. like people's birthdays and that kind of stuff right. come up in Skype, which actually is probably the most useful part because I don't tend to log in Facebook daily. So right. actually, if I get those notifications in Skype, it's quite nice. So. so you're not one of the one third of the planet that logs in. No, no, no. I, I, a couple of times a week, but not, not every single day. So, Yeah. So I always laugh on Facebook. I had another friend this week, about a week ago, declare, I am getting off Facebook for the next few weeks. I'm busy with work and school and, you know, <laughs> she's American school and, and this and that. And I always say in my head, yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> a few hours later, the photos are still rolling in. And, you know, it's, inc it's incredible. The stickiness of that platform is just, is just remarkable. So um, you're doing well, James. Mm, um, avoiding it. Yeah. A, a few times a week. I, I have to admit, um, I know if my friends were listening to this, they would be rolling their eyes at me because I, <laughs> I update it two, three times a day, put photos on. I'm, I'm sort of the admin of a couple of groups. And oh, wow, you're yeah, very active. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty active on Facebook. I, I always, ha always have been. I think if my grandkids, if my future grandkids, I don't have any grandkids, but if <laughs> I ever do have grandkids, I sometimes wonder if they'll be you know spend years analyzing my facebook account or it will just seem like absolute <laughs> noise and rubbish to them anyway that's um, opera uh, interesting hopefully uh, yeah helps the developers out one less thing to worry about um i saw uh, marissa mayer was talking at one of those uh, conferences put together i think goldman sachs had a tech conference of sorts this week uh, should, right. should actually look if they've put any of the videos or anything online often these conferences have mm. smart people um saying smart things um and i saw marissa mayer who's now the ceo of yahoo of course ex google and one of the um one of the first um developers or product managers i think she was within the first 20 or 30 uh, yeah product managers yeah one of the first product managers um and if you're listening and you are interested in sort of you know the development of silicon valley and google in particular um have a look at you know marissa mayer's story she tells some really funny stories about the very early days of google um when they were launching some stuff and one of the i don't know if it's larry or Sir, sergey was so fearful the servers were going to melt down he was hiding in the kitchen or something <laughs> like just some really wacky stories anyway she's the ceo of yahoo now and she came out um talking a little bit about um microsoft's or more bing's is it bing's and yahoo's um marriage that they they put together in 2010 for their for their search technology yeah so essentially, I think what they did was they integrated the the Bing engine into Yahoo. Is there something along those lines? So Yahoo search was driven by Bing, um, and there was some kind of ad partnership as well. So I think the maybe the Yahoo and the Bing Bing ad adventure was shared between the network, something like that. Some sort yeah, of I think. I mean, essentially, they ganged up to try and beat um, Google. Mm. Um, and it hasn't worked. She says that the, no. the stats have just, you know, Google still has about 66%, I think. Um, it's, so they, they inked a 10-year partnership in 2010, 66.6% um, .6 two years ago. Um, and it seems like now, sort of three years later, it still hasn't changed much. Um, so she's not too happy with that. I mean, it's interesting to see... Um, the changes that she's she's putting in there. Um, she says she added that 
Though the alliance hasn't made a dent in Google's chunk of the market, Bing.com has taken share away from Yahoo Search. So Bing might have sort of taken a bit away from Yahoo, but it hasn't, but the, you know, the, the joint sort of impact of Yahoo and um, Bing um, hasn't really made a dent. I mean, Yahoo is an interesting one. You know, sometimes I wonder, you know, in our sort of rarefied world of tech junkies, it, it, it never seems to get on the radar, you know, either here or in the States. No one ever talks about their properties. No mm -hmm. one ever seems to use it. They, they don't seem to be on the radar. But I wonder if there's this, you, you know, the, 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 the sort of the people that aren't the tech junkies, particularly mm. in the U.S., that don't you know that that are that use tech but don't talk about it and don't think about it um, i think yahoo is still one of the top sites in the u.s in terms of impressions and uniques mm. yeah it's kind of crazy that you that it's you know it kind of just sort of exists around the periphery but pr probably still has quite a lot of traffic yeah it's um yeah she says she's going to whittle down their mobile offerings from 60 to 12. So I think she's trying to, uh, they, mo they apparently got different mobile products in terms of, you know, whatever apps and mobile versions of their sites oh, okay. and things mm. like that. Um, they actually, they have a lot going on there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always been impressed by their, by their technology. I mean, I know we use a few of their API systems. They've always been fairly, fairly mature on, on that end of things. Um, it's always, it's always seemed like there's lots to like about it, but mm. it's always just some misses some, somewhere. Like it just doesn't quite execute all the way. And I think, I think um, a big part of that, and that's where you sense lack of leadership. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think that's where you know they, they they seem to have great engineers and great people, but over the last few years they've had a lot of internal problems and leadership problems and. Um, Carol Bartz, who, you know, tried to get it going and she wasn't liked by the industry and there was all yep. sorts of problems there. And Microsoft made that big offer. And then I think Jerry Yang, who's one of the founders of Yahoo, I think he was involved in rejecting that offer. All right. And then the share price of Yahoo tanked. And it's, um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's been an interesting story. But, mm. uh, you know, Marissa May, is a, she's a very smart, capable woman, as we've mentioned her a few times. And... Um, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, a lot of pressure on her. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's been there a little bit now. What is it, like a year? Already? Yeah, probably, probably, probably about that. Mm. I mean, they, I mean, in a way, even though there's pressure on her, I mean, she's made a huge amount of money, yep. so uh, she doesn't have to really worry about bread and butter. And this can be just a a grand experiment for her, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's still interesting to see what she does with it. I mean, there's there's obviously. Plenty that um, plenty that can be done. Uh, I mean that 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 being in Yahoo partnership has always seemed a little bit weird. Like mm. never really quite understood what they were trying to achieve. I think they were just trying to achieve one thing, really, and that yep. was just to chip into chip into Google. Google. They had they had a joint enemy, <coughs> shared enemy. Yeah, I understand that, but I just, I still don't really understand how merging their technology would have would have got them any further towards that goal. It doesn't seem like a I mean, it just means that their combined audiences are going to be shared between the properties in some ways. Um, I mean, they really need to work on some way to, and they basically just need to make their make themselves competitive with with Google and bring better technology, which is obviously easier said than done. But um, you, you know what, though, like you know, it's the, Dick Costello, the CEO of Twitter, mm. um, said something really interesting over the last couple of weeks, 
um, about Vine, which we've spoken about you know, last last week. He he said, I think this was in a Wall Street Journal article. He sort of, and I'm paraphrasing here. He said something like, "Look, we realized we lost on photos to Instagram or something like that. We thought about what's the next best, what's the next mm. thing, right? Interesting. Yeah. And we let's win at that game, right? So it's the whole. I think Wayne Gretzky's got a famous quote: the big hockey player in Canada mm. or the States, whoever said, you know, I don't skate to where the puck <laughs> is, I skate to where it's going. Yeah. Type story, yeah. and. You know, I think sometimes CEOs can get um, a little bit obsessed with competitors and where things are at. And, you know, I think it would be great if Marissa Mayer took took a, a stand and go, okay, look, you know, great, Google's one, search as it is, as it exists today, et cetera. Let's, what's, where's it going to next? Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. And I think she understands that. I know many years ago when I heard her talk at TechCrunch, before all this autocomplete stuff with Google and instant search stuff was in place, mm. she was talking at that stage about saying, and she was still working at Google, obviously, she was saying how, how you know, we can so accurately predict mm. what you want to search on. And, and the next stage for us is to, even before you know it, to tell you what you need and tell you what you want. Yeah. But I think that's, you know, and I think it's a lesson for, for CEOs and, and I know even in our T- tiny microcosm of the world I try to try to not get get too bogged down into the to the competitive races and just to think well where wh- you know there's something we both we're all knocking on this one door but there's actually a door right next door of lost opportunity that no one's looking at mm. and yeah. Yahoo's got a brand they've got great engineers um, mm. you know they've they've obviously um, you, you know they, they they have a lot going for them they were yeah, the definitely. original um web company yeah. after after netscape i think they were probably the yeah lots of lots of sort of social capital to build on absolutely so you know if 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 i was mentoring marissa if she'd give me a call up which <laughs> <laughs> she, if you're listening marissa. next time yeah next time i'll i'll pass her by at davos <laughs> you know because i missed her at this most recent <laughs> davos um would you like to go to davos i'd like to go to davos yeah i would yeah be nice i nice said nice to invite it I said to one of my friends, I'd love, uh, you know, and he looked at me and it's like, like, why would you, you know, it seemed very boring to him, but I, I like to chew on the fat of the macro issues, you yeah, know, with some of those smart people. Um, but yeah, I would say that to her, look, where's, where's the puck going? You know, our industry is mm. moving so fast, location-based and mobile and, uh, you know, enterprise, and there's so many things happening. Yeah. Um, I would even look at, yeah, enterprise and government are really two interesting areas. Anyway, I am rambling a bit. Um, Instagram, um, as I mentioned before, I love it. If you want to follow me on Instagram, um, it's my same as my Twitter handle, K-E underscore G-A. Um, I saw there's a new service, James, where you can, you can order your Instagram photos on a nice acrylic or wood panel. Hmm. Insta, Insta this it's called. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't, I don't know if I'd use it. I would use it. Would you? Absolutely. What would you use it for? My Instagram photos. I'm very proud of my Instagram photos. Would you like? Can you like subscribe so they make like every one that you do? No, I think you choose them. I think it's right. about I think it's about eighty bucks a pop or sixty to eighty bucks a pop. We'll put the we'll put the link on the show notes so you can have a look. I'm actually going to try it. I'm going to see if they do international hmm. delivery. Um, it'd be cool to get because they do like small little little prints, don't they? Mm. Small sizes, so it'd be good to get like you know 
six or ten or something and then you put them in a pattern on the wall and it'd be kind of cool yeah and it's sort of sort of quirky that you're there your own photos you know i mean i yeah. never thought i'd be be, be printable <laughs> you know as a non-professional uh, photo person and that i'm printable is sort of yeah is sort of sort of cool yeah it's, it's interesting yeah but my young friends um you know whenever i take a nice instagram photo and i show them you know, and they always sort of half roll their eyes and they go, Kevin, it's so easy to take a good photo these days. You know? <laughs> Thanks for delegitimizing my entire experience. Um, but I'll, I'll give it a go. I'm still a fan of the good old Instagram. I'm still waiting for Vine for Android. It has not released mm. yet. No, no love for the Android. Uh, it's, um, I mean, come on. Like, this is Twitter. Like, you know, they should be releasing early. Doesn't matter if it's a watered down version. Doesn't matter if it's breaking a little bit. I'm sure people would complain if they did that, if they had like a proper iPhone version, but a a breaking... Look, look, I mean, it doesn't... It needs to be workable, but, you know, it doesn't... Yeah, all these things take time. They probably have uh, separate teams, so one team working on Android, one working on iOS. Yeah. So, And I'm sure the Android team only started once they did the acquisition, whereas they had the iPhone one long before that. Have you been using Vine much? No, not since I initially uh, initially uh, used it once. I mean, there were a couple of times when I thought, oh, I should have used Vine for that. Yeah. So it's kind of got a bit of that like Twitter and Instagram quality to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I can see I can see the value. Yeah. I, I don't even have Vine on my phone, and I keep <laughs> on thinking I want to Vine that. So, which is which is a good sign. But I'm probably you know I'm probably a little bit. I'm not your. I'm I'm a bit early adopterish. Um, you're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast. Um, just to let you know, you can follow us on Twitter on Monkey Podcast. Please follow us. Please tweet about us. We love bringing you interesting tech discussions, tech interviews. Um, we run a company called 89N, which is the home of Manage Flitter. James is uh, the technical brains and uh, he's the code, the code engineer slash everything guru. And you didn't say code monkey. <laughs> no, I feel bad for the monkeys. You know why do why do they always get Sorry, a hard no. get a hard rap? The poor monkeys, um, and and I'm sort of the the technically the CEO. We're still trying to work out whatever that means. Or as Phil Liban, who we had on the show. If you haven't listened to the Phil Liban show, um, go back to our webpage. It's a monkey.com and have a look. It's episode eleven. And we interviewed Phil Leiben, who's the CEO of Evernote. And what a great interview that was. Just a terrific, smart, insightful guy. And he said, you know, his role as a CEO is to keep, you know, absorb. what what was it, a stress sponge? Or he's a sponge in the organization so everyone else can do their job. Yeah, get rid of all the drama. Yeah, Yeah, get rid of all the drama. So I think think that's a little bit of my role to to pay the bills and to empty the garbage bins and you know make sure these guys can can they, they they're the real smart ones so um you're listening to episode 13 um we're going to take a short break and afterwards we're going to be talking to burke smith from straightaline.com he's got a startup that's tackling the issue of um, universities um, the high fees the high entrance rates and just bringing it down to the masses to help more people get educated which let's face it it's a core sort of you know if we educate more people in the world everyone benefits no one loses so uh, let's see what uh, he has to say so we'll um, see you after the break the it's a monkey podcast is brought to you by manage flitter with manage flitter you can easily find out who isn't following you back find new people to follow 
track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garb on the It's a Monkey podcast. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll know that I am a fan of education and higher education and how technology impacts education. After all, all the cool tools that we have really only make a difference if it trickles down to making us smarter, wiser and impacting our world in a very grassroots level and and assist in things like um, energy and policy and stable societies. And one of the areas that I am a little bit disappointed that technology has not impacted as much as I think it could is education and higher education in particular. So I thought we'd get an expert on the topic who is is deep in this area to chat a little bit about these issues and, and, and tease them apart. So I'm happy to have on the line from Baltimore on the east coast of the USA, Burke Smith, who's the founder of Straight Align, which is a, a, an interesting um, education, higher education startup, which uh, we'll be hearing all about. Burke, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Burke, I think let's just take a little bit of a step back. You've written some, some interesting pieces about higher education, in particular a few days ago, I noticed you've, you've written a piece um, labeled about some contrarian views about higher education. Do you want to give us a little bit of your view on the big picture of the state of play of technology and higher education? Sure, uh, and maybe it's best to start uh, with really my, my past. Um, in the mid-90s, uh, I was very interested in education technology and was uh, looking at what the benefits of technology should be in education and using what technology does in other industries where it drives productivity improvements, where you get better quality, lower prices, and uh, and that's why we use technology. And then I looked at education and it seemed to me the exact opposite was happening. We were seeing higher prices and arguably lower quality and tried to figure out why that was. And the answer that I came up with, and I'm going to have to use the United States perspective because that's the system that I'm most familiar with, but uh, the problems were largely regulatory, that we had created a system that did not create the kind of Uh, structure for innovation that would allow price competition to drive the price down for uh, for education. So uh, in the U.S., what that means is that colleges uh, are defined by the accrediting bodies, and they are subsidized by governments, which creates um, uh, uh, market preference. And so an enormous amount of money in the U.S. flows to colleges. There are In the U.S., there are the, the subsidies we're aware of, like um, direct funds, direct funding of colleges, uh, subsidization of uh, loans and grants to students, but all, uh, as well as others we're not as familiar with, like nonprofit tax status is a taxpayer subsidy, uh, as well as various tax benefits that students get to go to college. But all of that is controlled by the accreditation process in the U.S., Uh, To be accredited, you cannot offer just courses. You must offer an entire degree. Colleges can accept or deny other people's credits at their will. The accrediting bodies are staffed and financed by colleges themselves, so they're effectively self-regulating. And then lastly, the things that are reviewed that count to be accredited are input-focused, like organizational structure, buildings, books and libraries, things like that, as opposed to outcome-focused, which means that colleges uh, must look more or less like each other and have the same sort of cost structures. So all that means is that someone who says, hey, if I have the world's best K-12 
calculus course and it's online, um, a student cannot get any taxpayer subsidies to buy that course. And if they do, they didn't have to persuade the college where they are going to accept it for credit. And all that makes it very difficult to create the kind of innovation that one would expect from, um, uh, from online learning or from new technologies. And I think what you're seeing now is many, at least in the US, uh, the most interesting innovations in cost reduction are happening outside of the accreditation environment, and that's not a coincidence. So the two things that pop to mind is one that there's a there's a whole heap of vested interests and historical relationships, and all of this was constructed really before technology and the internet was as pervasive, easy, accessible, and all the other benefits that, that exist today. That they, they was constructed before this new environment and new new state of play. That's right. And uh, again, looking to the U.S., the um, in the, just after World War II. Uh, the uh, GI Bill in the U.S. basically gave uh, access to college to all of the returning soldiers. And the government wanted some way to uh, ensure that all that money going to soldiers wasn't going to be wasted. So accreditation was, at the time, a uh, essentially a, a self-improvement association. It, was, uh, it didn't have any kind of regulatory enforcement or or, um, or tied to taxpayer subsidies. But the government said, hey, you know, anyone who is part of this must be of high quality, and therefore we will use this as the standard uh, by which we will allocate these funds, or that uh, students who go to these schools can then access these government funds. And so that's how the um, sort of self-regulatory or, or self-improvement society of accreditation became tied to government financing. And, um, and that combination worked, and it, was, it made a lot of sense in 1949 when it was, uh, when it was done. Um, and, uh, but what's happened is really in the early part of the 2000s, that changed. You didn't have to be a, you didn't have to have a facility. You don't have to have a ground-based facility with lots of buildings and ivory-colored towers and a gymnasium uh, to be able to offer online courses. Um, yet colleges offer online courses, but others uh, cannot do it. So two principles, I think, underlie really all of this. Uh, us first, straight along, started in 2008, but you've seen more entrants come on more recently. Uh, I think these principles also underline what's being called the MOOCs, though I'd expect uh, MOOCs will start to look a lot more like straight line over the next couple of years. But the um, one is that online courses should be much cheaper than face-to-face -face courses. There's just no overhead. Uh, you don't have buildings. Uh, the software to run it is uh, free, or, or pretty close to free and getting closer to it. The content is pretty close to free. There's very little overhead that goes to an online course. There's no reason it should be as expensive as a face-to-face -face course. Uh, second is that anyone can be a college. You don't have to be a college to offer a college course. So online. So if you meet whatever the appropriate standard is for a college course, why shouldn't that count? The problem is, again, in the US, is the standard for what does count as a college course is extraordinarily ambiguous, and colleges and accreditors have very little incentive to uh, make that clear. So um, uh, those two dynamics really change the whole structure of how we think of higher education. If anyone can be a college, why do some colleges get taxpayer subsidies and others don't? Um, the, uh, if colleges, if online courses should be much, much cheaper, uh, and they are already being given equivalent academic credit, uh, if they were allowed to be much cheaper, that, that suddenly students move over to that, or many students move over to that model, which changes the cross-subsidy, uh, the cross-subsidization model of most colleges' businesses. So online courses dramatically subsidize face-to-face -face courses, general education courses subsidize uh, non-general education courses. Uh, if students are able to sort of pull those, uh, sort of not sub, uh, uh, um, 
opt out of this subsidy model by choosing lower prices, uh, that changes the pricing structure for the rest of the college. So once you start to pull these strings, which are really important, you start to threaten the entire business model, you start to threaten the vested interests, and that's why this is as disruptive as it is, and maybe more so than, than, uh, than people have given it credit for so far. I mean, I just think, saying a lot. <laughs> uh, people, look, people really think it's disruptive. So, uh, I think you know the the very important sentence that you've said a couple of times is that today anyone can be a college, and it's not that many years ago. I mean, even when I was doing my undergraduate degree, when the internet was just flapping its wings, wings, that in order to start a university, or the benefits that a university provided were were very specific in terms of access to resources, lecturers and books and libraries that you could only access at the university. Now today with the internet, of course anyone can be a college because information is essentially abundant and free and packaging that up almost can be done by anyone. So access, no one really has a monopoly on educational resources anymore, which is, which is a terrific thing that the democratization of all this information, so I guess the politics and the and um, you you know the the laws and the and the vested interests just haven't kept up with it by the sounds of things. Yes, I would agree, uh, and that's you know, that's uh, ultimately a really big and difficult and thorny social question. Uh, I've written uh, something; it's going to be a, a published as a book chapter by the Harvard Education Press this summer. I'm going to write it for the American Enterprise Institute, where um, and it's online if folks want to see it. But uh, where I compared what's happening in higher education to the U.S. postal system. And what's happened with the U.S. postal system is not unlike higher ed is that with the growth of email, uh, text messaging, uh, cell phones, uh, you know, over time, what was a, an, an amazing and necessary system has become in many ways uh, irrelevant. The, uh, we still use mail for some things, but far less. And the infrastructure required to maintain the postal system uh, is just too expensive for what we're getting from it. However, and, and it's running billions of dollars into the in, 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 um, in debt, which is being funded by the U.S. government. And um, the, uh, the problem is that there is a post office at every town in the country. And so there's enormous political influence to keeping the postal system afloat, even when it's clear that it uh, doesn't have a viable business model anymore. And uh, I think we're going to see the same things with colleges, is that the, uh, there is enormous political interest in keeping colleges going because there are colleges in uh, multiple colleges in many cities and at least a college in almost everyone. And uh, these have strong political, con political constituencies. So despite the fact that college could be much cheaper, uh, actually doing the regulatory work to change that would be um, very difficult because of political pressures. How we address that as a society, we'll, we'll, we'll see. What do you think of Peter, Peter Thiel's initiative? I'm sure you're familiar with that. If I remember correctly, he he pays the smartest students not to go to college and join his program. Is that correct? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I um, in terms of uh, social power, I think that is it's relatively small. I mean, so the best students can go anywhere they want to, and whether that's going to college uh, or and where they may get scholarships and not pay anyway, uh, or going to a company to learn how to do a startup or work in a company. And, and those, aren't, those aren't mutually exclusive. You can go to a company first and then go back to college. So there's lots of interesting things that, that can be done. But that's a very, very small portion of the, uh, 
of the student base. I think where the real power of online learning is is at the other end of the spectrum. So the you know when most people think of college, they maybe look back to their college experience or they look to the elite colleges, which is sort of this idealized version of college that people like to pretend that all college experience is like. Uh, and again, in the U.S., most students are not living that college life. Uh, most students are working, they're adults, non-traditional as we call them, they may be online, um, they're older than 25, uh, there's a lots of different factors, but they're not having that idealized uh, sort of quad and ivory tower experience. Um, and where online learning can be really powerful is driving the cost down for that other, the majority of students who aren't in that uh, really high, I mean to put it in economics terms, that high fixed cost learning environment. Um, and uh, But if we do that, that creates all sorts of business model stresses on higher education. And maybe to put it differently is that the, um, uh, college, the college regulatory system, the accreditation system, um, is faced with, uh, with really an imp impossible set of choices. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it's becoming abundantly clear that online courses can be offered by unsubsidized, unaccredited providers that are better and dramatically cheaper than those offered by accredited and subsidized providers. Um, so accreditors, if they are reflecting you know, the good uh, consumer interest, should do something. Now, on the one hand, they can expand to include these new providers like Straighter Line and others um, and allow course level price competition. But doing that will flood the market with much lower price providers um, of, uh, of college courses, which will undermine existing colleges. On the other hand, they could uh, dramatically change the definition of college such that it does reflect that four-year idealized on-campus Ivy, you know, Ivy-clad tower experience, and um, uh, which is what everyone sort of thinks of as their college experience. But however, if they do that, many colleges' business models are subsidized by all these other forms of uh, profit, you know, these other profit centers they get from online learning or adult learning or um, uh, satellite campuses or whatever it is. So doing that would also undermine colleges, many colleges' business models. So that's where you know the regulatory system is right now, at least in the U.S. And um, you know I think what you're you're seeing is when uh, uh, when in doubt form a committee, and that's what there's a lot of that going on right now. So tell us about Straight Align. I, I had a brief look at it. It looks looks interesting. A subscription type of um, education learning um, system. I am familiar with the the non-college type of subscription um, platform, lynda.com, which I believe has been a, a huge success. Obviously, it's unaccredited type of learning, but um, we use it yep. in our business and the staff can just log in and just, um, you, you know, and brush up on any skills. Tell us about Straight Align, your startup. Sure. Uh, so we offer uh, freshman and sophomore level college courses uh, directly to students. So things like Econ 101, Accounting 101, uh, Calculus, uh, Chemistry 101, all those courses that students take in their freshman and sophomore years of college. Uh, those courses, about 40 of them, represent a third of all course enrollments. So you don't need to offer many courses to wow. uh, to really wow. cover a big chunk of the college landscape. That, that, that is incredible. Just just those sort of handful of courses, your economics, your accounting, your calculus is, is a chunk of what colleges offer. Yeah, exactly. Incredible. And those are massive uh, cash cows for colleges. So it doesn't cost them much to deliver. Think of a large lecture hall environment and how much it costs per student to deliver an Econ 101 course and what a college gets for that course if you see the profit. Uh, that is that uh, the colleges are deriving from it. Now, maybe that profit's okay in a face-to-face -face environment, but if you move online, there's none of the overhead to support uh, then, uh, in that kind of model. 
The, um, so what Straight Align does is we offer just those courses. Uh, we offer them directly to students. We're not allowed to be accredited. Uh, so we're not a college. Uh, however, we have relationships with colleges uh, that will award credit for our courses. So students pay $99 per month as a subscription fee and then uh, a one-time fee per course. That one-time fee is roughly $49 per course started. So not unlike a health club model where you pay a monthly subscription and then you pay extra for your spin class or your uh, kickboxing or whatever it is um, as, you, uh, as you want them. The, um, uh, so students take their courses and by charging on a subscription, we do a number of things that I think are really interesting. Uh, one is our prices are cheaper than even those of the community colleges and we don't get any government subsidies. Um, second, by charging on a subscription, we also make it much lower risk for students. So now if a student starts college, they pay several thousand dollars. Typically, I take out loans to do it. Uh, the taxpayers kick in a few thousand dollars. And in the U.S., you know, about 50% of these students are not completing their degree. So they end up with no degree and significant debt. And many of the reasons they don't complete might, well, one of them might be academic, but more often it's life. So childcare, hours shifted, jobs shifted, health problems, whatever it is, life got in the way. Uh, and our model, if uh, you start and you realize after the first month that you bit off more than you can chew, you're out to $148. So uh, it's a very low-risk way to start college. So, um, so students take how many courses they want to. They transfer them to colleges that will award credit for the courses. Uh, we recently added a new function, which uh, we're really excited about, where uh, we've called Professor Direct where any professor can come on and teach on top of our courses. Uh, so they can add more content, add more assignments, add more assessments, add more support, add their ideological bent, whatever it is. Uh, but they cannot subtract, so they cannot change the, or, or diminish the syllabus. Uh, we have constant assessments that every student takes, no matter who they're working with. Uh, so we can make um, uh, equal comparisons across professors. Uh, professors can also set their own prices. So uh, it's kind of like an eBay seller model, but for professors. Um, and uh, uh, it allows students to make decisions based on what kind of learning experience they want at what price. Uh, so we launched that. Uh, we've been growing very rapidly, about uh, 2 to 3x per year. And, uh, and we think, and you know, we started, uh, started in 2008 as a division of my first company, which is uh, an online tutoring provider called Smart Thinking uh, that's now owned by Pearson. And then we uh, spun out in 2010. But those principles that I mentioned earlier, anyone can be a college and online courses should be much cheaper, are the same principles that are now underpinning all these, uh, these new companies that are popping out. We uh, perhaps self-indulgently self like to think we're, we were first but, um, and furthest along, but, uh, but it's certainly a trend that's growing rapidly. I think it's a fantastic model. It's essentially you, you're creating a platform and it's essentially software as a service for education. Right, exactly. And uh, with a pathway to credit. And that's the hard part. Is that, uh, and that's sort of the, the big question here in the U.S. for all the political reasons I mentioned earlier is you know, who will award credit for, uh, for courses from unaccredited providers? And so we uh, went to the colleges that are doing that anyway. So they tend to be the largest adult serving providers and the largest online providers in the United States. Uh, and the reason they're willing to do it is because it's very competitive for those students. They're competing with thousands of other, really, well, not thousands, but hundreds at least, of other providers for students because online learning is one big marketplace. Unlike a face-to-face -face experience where you have one, maybe two options for, uh, for education. 
So the online providers are working in a different sort of uh, competitive environment, and they're willing to award credits from providers like us outside the system. Um, the more subsidized face-to-face uh, -face providers are less likely to do it because, um, well, they don't want to. But, but let, me, let me ask you a question, a longer-term trend. I mean, do you think in many industries that having a college degree that from an accredited institution is going to be as important as it is now or actually just having the knowledge and the capability and the, the, the skill um, is actually going to, you know, trump that. I mean, in the old days when the internet didn't exist, I guess it was very hard to assess whether people had the skills. There was no other way often to acquire that skill. I know in, in our business, in our industry, in tech startups, whilst it's nice to have when we when we when we employing people, um, what the uh, to have a degree from a fancy institution, uh, you, you know, far far more important is if they can do the job well. Uh, yes, the um, uh, one would hope, or let me put it this way, the uh, idealized way of evaluating, or the ideal way of evaluating talent is to look at uh, uh, skills and competencies um, you know, embedded in some kind of portfolio, uh, and it does, and it, which is not necessarily tied to a college degree. Um, someday we will get there. The problem is uh, getting there is going to be long and difficult. Uh, and in large part because the college degree is known by companies, um, is a uh, is subsidized by the government, so it's very difficult to displace it. Uh, and much of the value comes from um, uh, comes from really just uh, legacy experience. So the um, uh, it will take some time, uh, I think a long time. And during that time, there needs to be some kind of transition between the two. And so we are, uh, that's kind of what we're doing. One of the things we actually just launched also in December, uh, we have relationships with um, ETS, Educational Testing Service, and uh, a nonprofit group called the Council for Aid to Education, which makes a test called the Collegiate Learning Assessment, where they measure critical thinking skills. And so uh, we want to uh, build over time, I think it's going to take some time to build it, is a student can take 15 or 20 of our courses, take a critical thinking skills test, and be able to demonstrate to an employer, hey, I've you know, had the subject matter expertise, I can demonstrate critical thinking skills, this is equivalent or better than the degree to which you have been higher, you know, which is the standard you've been using before, so use this at least in, um, uh, as, as equal to a degree. It's going to take a long. Uh, I don't. And again, I don't know the time frame. If 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 I did, that would be a big advantage. But it's going to take years. I, I I think for transition from that degree focus to the um, uh, to the outcome focus. And one of the big things is is that and the reason colleges look to degrees is, or rather employers look to degrees is they don't pay for it. So uh, students and taxpayers fund the entire degree system, and so employers don't have to do anything to get students trained when they come in. And even if they have to retrain, they still got partial training without having to pay anything. So it will take some time for that to happen, but it will happen, um, but it will take some time. Interesting. Burke Smith, I really thank you for joining us. Founder of Straight Align. Uh, I think it's a fascinating space that you, you're playing in, so to speak, and I'll definitely watch it with interest and um, yeah good luck with it all I hope you keep up that two to three times uh, growth yeah me too if there are uh, Australian uh, either companies or colleges listening who want to work with us we'd love to work with you we'll put your details up on the uh, on the website and um, yeah a lo a lo lots of lots of room for uh, innovation in education in Australia as well terrific uh, well thank you for calling thanks Burke all the best bye-bye take care bye-bye
The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one month free budgie account. Whoa, a lot of food for thought there. Yeah, <laughs> lots. Yeah. A lot of food for thought. I mean, what stood out for me, he says, the education system today can be very much be seen like the U.S. postal system. And <laughs> you can sort of you'd stop there. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, the main thing I sort of took away from it is it's, it just feels really exciting that, that there is this huge kind of ecosystem of online education providers. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, you know, I think we expected to happen a few years ago, but now it's really building up, you know, steam. And when he's talking about, you know, there's hundreds of competitors in the space, there's so many people working in um, in the area um, and, and starting to sort of realize value out of it. It's, yeah, it's really exciting. You know who I think should start a university? To me, it's the most obvious solution. When most people, especially when I, when I chat to friends that are, you know, early to mid twenties, when they want to teach themselves a skill, Hmm. Where do they go to, especially if it's a sort of um, skill requiring their hands? Hmm. They go to YouTube. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. They want to learn how to play guitar, learn how to sometimes even cook things. Hmm. Um, okay. They're not academic skills per se, but I think it would be super cool. And they've got so much credibility and money and et cetera. Hmm. Uh, you know, if YouTube would, would, would really and it would be really in good i mean google google like to disrupt things they got the driverless car they got um you know google glasses they got a, they got all this cash that they don't know what to do with mm. and they they're working on all these initiatives and you know they struggle to hire people as well so educating people would benefit them i think it would be terrific if they just had youtube university and they mm-hmm. put partner with stanford uh, down the road and um yeah, I mean, there are some existing startups that um, that do the kind of like the video education stuff. And if they acquired one of those and mm. branded under YouTube, I think it'd be very powerful. Yeah, And I mean, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a huge <coughs> amount of money in education. I find it a really fascinating space. And yeah. I, I'm almost just want to sit down with you and go, what can we do in this <laughs> space? Because it's, it's, it's so, yeah, it's really, it's really a nice sort of pillar of society. Anyway, um, that's it for today. Coming up in the future episodes, we're going to be talking to someone about SEO in 2013. Sort of, we don't hear all that much about SEO. It's n- not as buzzy as it was, but of course, uh, getting on search engines is still very relevant, very important. And we're talking to someone who's got a good familiarity with the state of play with search engines and all the social media networks. We're also trying to get someone from Yammer, the social, the enterprise social uh, media network to come and just chat a little bit about enterprise. I mean, I'm, I'm, I like enterprise. We've got a product that's pretty much targeted enterprise, doesn't get as much buzz and hype, but there are interesting things happening in the enterprise. I was just trying to get someone from branch.com, which is uh, one of the new content type of sites. Um, I see Medium have been pushing some stuff, which is the Twitter guy's new Twitter, website. Yeah. Um, seem to be updating. I still not sold on it yet, but look. Be interesting. 
interesting. Yeah. I mean, they obviously, uh, yeah, they uh, they got a lot of street cred. So stay tuned. Please tweet us, uh, Monkey Podcast, or find us on Facebook or email us, and we'd love to hear from you. If you can also email us an audio file about a question, a comment, anything, uh, we'll give you a shout out online. Um, it'd be good to put uh, voice to some of our listeners. And in the meantime. Um, have a good uh, couple of weeks and we'll see you in two weeks. And uh, James is just pulling out the organ. <laughs> and yep, there it goes. Kicking the music. Here we go. <laughs> see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>